red flags. Like I can't talk about my finances over the phone. You really have to sit down and have a meeting. You know, I would have sat down with that person and had a meeting before. Whereas yeah, and almost every case, it's because they're trying to sell you on why they're a good risk for lending the money and they're usually not. Yeah, exactly. Like one guy said, oh, the reason why I didn't pay my credit card for two years was because I thought I didn't have to. And that's why I had a consumer proposal. But if you know, explain this to the bank, I'm sure they'll approve me. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Scott Peckford here. Welcome to ILMB Rookie Mortgage Broker Podcast. Every Friday, I talk to a rookie who's making waves in the industry to see how they're succeeding. And today, I have Graham Campbell. Graham was a previous coaching client of mine that went through our high ticket program where we coached them on how to get realtors, something that we now include for free at our brokerage and we coach them on. And in any case, in 2019, Graham got licensed at the end of the year. We started doing some coaching with him. Didn't fund any mortgages in 2019. 2020, he did 7 million in production. And last year he did 28 million, which is amazing. And he's on track to do 50 this year. And all of his business is coming exclusively from real estate agents and love Graham's drive, his ambition. And I love doing these update shows just to check in and see how they're doing. A couple of things we talk about, talk about how his production increase is almost 400% year over year. It's even bigger than the marketplace. We talk about how email was becoming overwhelming and how we found this one app that makes it way easier for him to manage and helps him get to inbox zero. And we talk about hiring a client manager, client care specialist to help him get out of the office at a reasonable time and continue to grow. Right now, Graham's on track, you know, all things keep going to fund about 50 million this year, which is amazing considering it's his third year in the mortgage business and just love Graham and his ambition. In the Ask the Expert segment, I talked to Paul Campbell from Magenta about using gig work to qualify. I'm talking about Uber and these other gig type jobs that people have. And yes, you can get a mortgage with that type of income. Hey, before you listen to this conversation with Graham, Give a shout out to my title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application, document collection, submission platform. Very easy for borrowers to use, very easy for brokers, and very powerful. It's got some cool features built in like smart docs. It knows what documents your client needs. Smart submission notes. It knows what your lender needs to see from the application. And it also has lender spotlights. So you can search rates and guidelines. If you want to get a demo of how this tool works, go check out finmo.ca and check out this conversation with Graham. Hey, Graham, welcome back to the show. Hey, Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic, man. I love doing these update shows, and I know that you're in your second full year now or just finished your second full year. So a couple quick questions for you. When did you get licensed, and then what was your first year like? Because it's in a previous episode, but if they can't remember, how does that look? Yeah, so yeah. I got licensed just at the middle of 2019, and then I went nine months, I think, before I ended up getting paid. So the first while I was just kind of spinning my tires. And that was when I originally did your training back then. And yeah. so once I actually went through that and kind of learned, you know, better ways on how to get referrals from realtors and all that kind of stuff, pipeline started filling up. And then 2020, I had my first kind of, you know, decent year where I was actually closing a bit of business. I think I closed like seven or eight million or so. And then I kept, you know, trying to grow on prospect. And then that's when kind of 2021, I really felt the full swing of all the pipeline that had been built and all those new relationships and realtors really came through. So then we had a really strong year in 2021 as, you know, obviously most people did with the way the market went, but we're still happy to be having closed just a bit under 30 million. Right. And so you said something like 73, 74 files or something. So that's amazing, man. And where did the business come from? You said realtors, right? Primarily, that's where your businesses come from? Yeah, almost exclusively. 
Uh, and then how much follow-up did you have to do? Because a lot of people think, Hey, I got to go and, you know, shake hands and kiss babies. But you know, my experience, but that's not enough. You've actually got to follow up as well. Has that been your experience or what have you found? Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing that I found was kind of annoying, which was always if the realtor sent you business, if you can close it and approve them, you know, there wasn't really much more to do. So they send you one lead and, you know, it's a smooth deal. You know, all of a sudden everything's coming to you. But if they send you three people that are, you know, looking to buy a mobile home or someone that had a bankruptcy last year and they're trying to buy a million dollar house with 5% down, you know, you get a couple of leads like that from them and all of a sudden, you know, you don't hear from those people as much. And I feel like that's a bit of a, you know, kind of subconscious bias that, okay, well, this broker didn't work out, whether they're thinking that or not, you know, those people I definitely tried to follow up with, but didn't have as much success, but still definitely, you know, have to have a number of different follow-ups. Usually my go-to was meet someone in an open house, chat with them there, go through like the four slide presentation. And then from there book a meeting for like a coffee and actually go through a bit longer of kind of a strategy session with the realtors and how we're going to help their business. And from there, you know, checking in every now and then, depending on how warm or stale that realtor is. Cause I think I had four meetings with one top producer, like sit down like 45 minute plus meetings that, you know, never got any business from him ever, but you know, you still got to, you know, you, you got to plant there. seeds. You don't know where they're going to go. Right. Like yeah. you can't, you can't know that. Okay. So tell me about like, what's new in your world? Like what's the biggest change you made your business in the last six months? Yeah. I mean, definitely we've seen things kind of start to slow down a little bit and over the last year being a little bit crazy. And even the start of this year, I think I saw my January applications were like triple of what I had in 2021. So the year kind of got off to a good start for the biggest challenge I've had was really just managing my inbox. You know, I've got follow-up things in my CRM and stuff like that that are automated and you try to stay on top of as much as you can. But like I got COVID a couple of weeks ago and my inbox so I, actually. Yeah, <laughs> fell really behind on it because I just, you know, was in a bit of a daze for like a week when I was just, you know, had a bit of a fever and you know, really groggy and tired and then playing catch up after I'm like, oh, you know, how much stuff did I miss? How many emails? You know, even if they're benign little follow-ups here and there, you don't want to miss them. Right. So, okay. You're feeling like email is overwhelming. So tell me, how did you solve it or what have you done specifically to fix that problem? Bit of a fluke, really. I saw a random YouTube ad for email client called superhuman, which I really liked the speed of it. And the way that they have it work is essentially that you just have to perform a task for every single email. So as opposed to just focusing on, you know, what's read or unread, you have to perform an explicit action. You know, the email is done, set a follow-up reminder for it, reply, whatever it is, you have to do something with that email. Right. Okay. And you kind of gave me a screen share of this. What are the differences between that and Gmail or Outlook that you found? Because you use Gmail and Outlook. You kind of had a couple different email clients and now you've consolidated them all into this program called Superhuman. So what are some of the differences that you're noticing? The biggest thing compared to Gmail is definitely the speed they made it so it's everything's supposed to happen in like 100 milliseconds. So it feels instantaneous. Because I started off with Gmail when I first got licensed because I didn't want to pay for a domain and all that kind of stuff. As I got busier, obviously decided to set up a domain to make my email look a bit more professional, which now yeah. meant I was trying to manage two inboxes. Outlook was you know faster than Gmail, but the search function really wasn't that great. And I also didn't like how big each you know email is. Like you can only kind of see a dozen or even less than that emails without having to scroll down. So it was kind of harder to triage with Outlook, I found, because you just don't see as much at once. 
And so between those two things, I also couldn't import my Outlook into my Gmail. It's just supposed to allow you to do that. Funny enough, it worked on my phone. I can yeah. do both emails from one client to my phone, but on my desktop, it just didn't work. And the support at Google is really non-existent. Right. So I end up just kind of giving up with that. And so being able to have that plus my assistant's email all in you know one client makes looking at things at a glance a lot easier. So do you think this is a tool that would have been useful to you when you first started out? Or do you think it's now useful because you're busier? Or what are your thoughts? Like, yeah, I'm curious, because this is primarily rookie show. So I'm just like, if a rookie's listening to this, is that like, hey, is that something that they should consider or not yet? What yeah, I definitely would not have gotten it when I first started, especially because it is like a, probably one of the most expensive kind of email clients that I've looked at. It's like 30 bucks a month. So it's got a bit of a high price tag and I definitely wouldn't have needed it when I wasn't busy. Like in 2021, even when I was getting kind of the busiest months, it wasn't, I think, as necessary. I mean, I've got more emails now that are, you know, previous clients looking to refinance and things like that. So I've got probably a higher email volume, even if I am doing kind of a similar volume to last year with, you know, a bit of volume increase, but having it then wouldn't really have been a game changer. But at this point, especially after having some time off, not really time off of being sick and getting behind on stuff, definitely was a game changer now. But yeah, as a new agent, I don't think I'd really have a need for it. Necessarily right away. It's kind of like using an air nailer versus a hammer and nail. You know, if you're doing framing, air nailers are fast. You know, you can hammer quickly, but if you're just doing a little bit, it's a bit overkill. But you did hire a client care specialist in the last six months, which is something I want to talk about. But so then one last question on the email, how do you manage email now that there's two of you that are in the email, you and your client care? And do you just have separate emails? Do you have one email that you both manage? How are you doing that? Yeah, so we've got two separate emails. So mine's just Graham at, and then his is just client docs at. So it's just kind of, you know, send the client docs email. So it's kind of clear this is, you know, where you send your documents to if you're not uploading to the portal. Obviously, I prefer people to upload them directly to the portal, but some people just want email stuff. So what percentage of people email you versus upload, would you say? Probably almost 50-50, unfortunately. And so 50-50% of them will email. And so then your client care guy will upload them into the portal then so you can put them all in one place or what do you do with them then? So yeah, we've got like a Google Drive to share the docs with. So then, you know, a bit more organized and they can also, you know, if there's any things, you know, that's some people upload three job letters into the portal. And after I go back and tell them, okay, if, you know, not signed or, you know, doesn't have letterhead or whatever it is, you know, if they've got multiple documents, we keep one kind of drive of, okay, here's actual submission documents. Ones that are actually vetted ones that are correct. One page of a T1 and you're like, I need the whole thing, right? So Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So basically this program, it sounds like the key differences are, because I find in email and we just started using a program called Front App. And so Front App catches emails from me and my team. And then you can assign people different actions based on the emails. But I got to be honest, it's trying to like train an old dog, new tricks. I keep going back into Gmail and I need to go into Front. (laughs) And even then you need to create rules around this new, if you're managing email as a group, who's going to do it? And I have a couple of different businesses. And so like, which person from which business should be handling this particular? So in any case, but I think it's good that you're now at the place where you figured out a solution for that. And I'll reach out to you again in a couple of months and see how that's going. Okay. So tell me about the client care. So how did you know you needed to hire? And like, when did that happen? So I started out not really having a need to hire. I think what it really, but I was actually like an old friend of mine and he was working in an industry where he's basically looking at designing products that were 
related to client management for like a really large kind of like pharmacy conglomerate. So they were managing their pharmacy clients through these softwares that he was like a product owner for. And he was curious about kind of my own business practices and how I manage my clients and that kind of stuff. And so he just offered, you know, hey, you know, would you be interested in me kind of checking things out and providing some insight to see you know, where you might be able to improve some processes and stuff. And from there, I said, well, yeah, sure. But if you're actually going to do, you know, any reasonable amount of work, I want to pay you for it. And yeah, he was able to kind of provide some insights here and there, but it really boiled down to my biggest thing was just reviewing documents, how much time I spent going through documents, you know, because you want to send a clean package to the underwriter so deals can get approved faster and you're not doing as much back and forth. And between that and meetings, it got to be a bit much. Actually, one of your episodes, I think about Jules' business where she really only has like, I think two or three conversations with the clients along the process. Yeah. Um, that kind of system made sense to me where I said, okay, I want to boil down my conversation with the clients to be introductory phone call, pre-approval review, and you know, final signing package review, like mortgage approved, kind of here's the last conditions or whatever. Just go through the kind of main points, big important points for the clients. So you can still build that relationship, but have time to be doing only that because that's really where, you know, I'm converting leads is from that initial call. And so the more of those initial calls that I can have time for, the more business I can be creating. And if you can be managing some of those other kind of backend pieces and make sure the docs that come in are in the right formats and that we got proper submission packages ready for the lenders when those deals do go live was really kind of my biggest efficiency bonus that I needed to keep growing the volumes. Right. And to not have to work 12 hour days. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense about six months ago. And then you touched on something I want to ask you about. So junk leads at the beginning. So that's another thing that happens a lot of times when somebody's newer is realtors like, sure, you're, I like you, Graham. You seem like a go-getter. Here's like, they'll think about a file, dust it off and be like, Hey, this one, try this. <laughs> you experience that. How do you handle it now? And how would you handle it differently now that you have more experience? If you ran into that situation, I'm just curious. Well, I mean, the biggest thing is I can just identify the junk leads a lot sooner. So I probably would have spent more time, more conversations. I mean, I've also changed my like application process. So before I used to spend probably about an hour on the phone for that first phone call to really get their whole picture, you know, whole scenario and lots of it, you know, obviously what people say and what the actual truths of their finances are, aren't quite how they like to make them sound. Whereas now my initial call is usually only like 10 to 30 minutes at most where it's really just me going through my script of who I am, how my business works and kind of going through every unspoken objection with clients to just build that rapport right away. And then the rest of it's all you know, automated through my CRM and that kind of stuff going through the you know, documents and application, all that kind of stuff. So being able to kind of pick out those people that I hear red flags, like I can't talk about my finances over the phone and you really have to sit down and have a meeting. You know, I would have sat down with that person and had a meeting before. Yeah, and almost every case, it's because they're trying to sell you on why they're a good risk for lending the money and they're usually not. Yeah, exactly. Like one guy said, oh, the reason why I didn't pay my credit card for two years was because I thought I didn't have to. And that's why I had a concern proposal. But if you know, explain this to the bank, I'm sure they'll approve me. And it's like, obviously, when you have tons of time and there's no conflicts scheduled to sit down with anyone, then why not? Um, but right when you want to start being, you know, more productive and increase your volumes, it's, you know. So then, okay, how do you say, once you, let's say, so you've gotten better at the discovery call, identifying that it's junk. How do you say no to a client? Like, what does that look like? So if I'm a client and you realize, oh my gosh, haven't paid a credit card in two years and whatever my situation is, because I didn't think I had to. (laughs) Well, like, seriously, I'm like, what would compel you to even think? That's a terrible even excuse. 
But how do you talk to those clients now? What would you say to them? Besides that one, you know, kind of 15 minute phone call, you know, after they get everything in, I don't actually, you know, underwrite their file at all until we have like everything all together. So I don't actually start building anything or reviewing, you know, stuff until they've actually submitted it all. So once we get it all together, okay, they got the full doc package in, you know, pull credit. And usually there it's okay, major problems with the file, or even if before that there's, you know, big red flags in the application of, you know, like part-time work and that's their only job and they've had for three months kind of thing. Just a quick email, you know, explaining, you know, two years, rebuild your credit. Here's how you can do I got a little template for here's how to improve your credit over two years. Uh, mm-hmm. Here's what you need to do. So a quick little templated email personalized a bit to, you know, still try to help the people, you know, if they really are, you know, in a position that they want to be able to buy, but they're just, you know, have some problems, whether it's employment or credit that, okay, well, here's what you need to do. And just kind of fire that off of, okay, well, you know, then they're on their way, give the realtor a quick update. Hey, you know, so-and-so is not ready to buy. We got them set up on a, you know, credit building plan, or we gave them some advice on how to improve whatever it happens to be that's wrong with their file. So let the realtor know that we still kind of did our due diligence because that's where all our business is coming from, but also just to set the client up for success. I mean, 90 plus percent of the time, you know, someone with a 500 credit score today is going to have a 500 credit score in two years, but you know, I feel like it's still, you know, nice enough. So do the, do the right thing. Email. And once in a while, they'll surprise you because, you know, maybe something will change or who knows. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really good. So basically, you're going to decision them much quicker and then just keep everybody in the loop and they don't take as much of your time and you're not going to get sucked into, hey, let's meet face to face. So those are all things that you do usually when you're starting out. Let me ask you this. So this is a question I love asking, you know, brokers. So can you think of a file that you lost when you first started out or in the first year that you now know that you'd handle differently? Because I think these are valuable for people listening going, oh, yeah, you know, because there's a thousand ways to kill a file, a thousand and one. And so share one so that they can, you know, they can learn from it, hopefully. That's a tough one. I so vaguely remember lots of files. I think there's a lot of files that I just really didn't have my scripting well enough that I just lost the clients because when they talked to me, they didn't have you know the confidence that I knew what I was doing. I mean, naturally, I didn't. <laughs> so right, you know, that, it wasn't wrong. <laughs> yeah, like they were probably making a good decision at that time if they had a you know complicated file. Um, yeah. There was definitely one file where it wasn't lost, but it was almost lost. And basically, I didn't have enough knowledge about reviewing strata documents and seeing that this one strata just had such a small contingency fund and the client had no savings. And so the lender was quite concerned about them being able to you know, afford any kind of special levy that might be coming in the future. Mm-hmm. And it ended up getting uh, declined by the insurer. And we ended up finding a solution, making it work, but it was just kind of one of those things that having, you know, the foresight to look back on just underwriting knowledge, really to go back and catch those things before, you know, hearing back. So if you, you know, give an explanation for it, it's better to give it up front than to give it after you've received the decision. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. You touched on something scripting dialed in. So how important has scripting been, do you think, in your success when it comes to realtors and clients? For clients, my absolute biggest game changer, that was kind of what made me to go from talking to clients to converting clients. I go through the exact same script with every single client that I talk to and haven't changed that script really in the last year. And that's like the biggest thing that really, I think started building that trust in the clients was having a proper script done for that initial call. And that was mostly based around just, like I said, those unspoken objections so that when 
I finish going through the scripting, I usually say, I know I went through that all a little quickly. Was there anything that I might have missed or anything that you're a little bit unclear about? And the average response is like, no, that was very thorough. Thank you. That all, you know, really cleared up all the questions I had. So I don't actually spend time answering any questions on that initial call. It's usually, I just go through the script after a brief, you know, little introduction, hello, you know, just go through your courtesies and then all their questions are answered before they even get to open their mouth. So it makes those calls a lot quicker too. Right. More efficient. And you're guiding the entire process. And yeah, conversion is key. Like, you know, you can get the lead, but then if you can't convert it, because you don't know how that conversation should go. So can you give me an example of like, what's a question or something that you ask in that initial discovery call that you find a lot of people don't want to ask or don't ask that you found helpful? Usually payment and fees, uh, because most people don't really have a full understanding of how mortgage brokers get paid. So like I've had, you know, lots of clients that just kind of assume that we have broker fees and stuff like that on every file. And just talking with clients, I think my scripting goes like, and the best part is, of course, it's a completely free service to you. And it's really not built to your rate or anything else like that. It's just cheaper for the banks to pay us when we put another mortgage on their books, et cetera, et cetera. And you obviously put a little disclaimer, the only time that we charge fees is for things like private lending or construction or commercial deals. And when all my business is coming from realtors, those are, you know, pretty few and far between, which letting clients know, you know, if it does end up being private, that, you know, that's the one case where we have fees. So you don't end up losing out on a private deal because you told them absolutely no fees and charges. And then right. turns out that they want to, you know, buy a house with 20% down, don't have enough income, but, you know, their risk tolerance is acceptable for a private loan or something. Right. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So scripting. So essentially then a couple of big changes you made email, figured out a tool that's been making that more effective for you instead of using email and using your um, read versus unread as your decision. it's like, if you click it, you have to action it. That makes a lot of sense. Actually, we know we should do it, but I do this. I go into email. I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this right now. And then I'll come back later. And like, what the flip? How many times am I going to look at this before I actually do something with it? You hired a client care manager in the last six months, which has been helpful for you from document time. How much more time were you able to get back with that client care manager? A lot. Yeah. Like my wife definitely noticed that I wasn't coming home so late, (laughs) but I was actually, you know, able to make it at home in time for dinner and things like that. So I probably went from, you know, like 10 to 12 to, you know, eight to nine kind of hours. And that's been with the volumes increasing as well. How does this year look for you guys so far? So, you know, it could change, but how are you trending so far? So we're hoping to do 50 million for this year, uh, which we're on pace for a bit of concerns that there might be, you know, market slowdown that could dampen that a little bit, but I also am kind of hoping that, you know, a big, huge backlog of first time home buyer pre-approvals will finally be able to start getting offers accepted on places when there's fewer bidding wars and places going for hundred K over ask. So I think that might kind of balance things out a little bit just between the market slowing and all those people that are backlogged, because obviously, you know, if you're a big investor and you've got a couple hundred grand in your account, you know, maybe the interest rates are going to scare you away from a purchase this year. But if you're just paying rent, you know, it's, still cheaper to buy a house if the mortgage yeah, you're, still better to, you're in most cases you're better to own than rent anyway so you're yeah so i think those kind of like insured deals are going to pick up a little bit uh-huh. um to hopefully offset the market that might be slowing down here right that's awesome okay the last question for you so if you were starting over today what would you do different what would you be advice for new people that are listening to this Definitely just to really kind of make a plan and get your scripting down and treat it like a business, like set goals and targets. And, you know, don't think of it as just, you know, something to do in your spare time. It's like, you really got to, 
be serious about it if you want to keep that train rolling. Because, you know, if you just get to the point where you're super busy and you don't have the right systems in place, it's all going to kind of crumble apart and referral partners don't last forever. So you got to, you know, be constantly sourcing new referral partners or new ways to bring business and however you want to do that, whether you're an online ad person or you're a realtor person like me or whatever it is that you do, like those sources are going to dry up. You're going to have realtors that leave the business. I had one realtor that sent a lot of business and moved to Australia. You know, it's right. not like I was doing them a disservice, but they're not sending me business anymore. So you always got to be kind of focusing on six to 12 months away and treating it like you would any other business. Right. And girl, you well, congrats on your success, man. I know there was a period where you went through the valley of shadow of death, like, oh my gosh, I'm putting in the work and you were getting junk leads when nothing was closing. And this was in 2019 and then 2020, it turned and then 2021 just went crazy. It was a good year, but that's almost four times what you did the year before. The market wasn't four times busier. So you obviously <laughs> gained market share in that period. So hat tip to you and your team as you continue to grow and even got married somewhere in between there too. I remember you were not married even when I first met you. So I'm sure your wife is loving the fact that you're not having to work 12 hour days anymore and you can you know be home a bit. Yeah, so. I basically got married, quit my job and started brokering all in like the same week. So. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, and then no money came in for a while. You're like, oh my God, what did I do? Um, yeah. When I talked to my wife about doing your training and she's like, oh, how much is it? And like, do we really have money to be spending on this? Like, is this a good idea? And, yeah, you know, obviously that was probably the biggest fear was, you know, is this investment going to have a proper return or am I just kind of throwing away the last of my savings to burn and crumble after? Right. And uh, luckily there was no burning and crumbling or at least not yet. Right. No, well, dude, you've done well, so good for you, but you've done the work. So awesome, man. Thanks for coming back on the show and inspiring some new people where they can be in a couple of years if they push through the tough period and get some help with it. So thanks, man. Awesome. Thanks so much, Scott. All right. Thanks again for having a listen to that conversation with Graham. Hopefully you're inspired with what's possible. A couple of quick things. First, one of the things that he talked about was scripting and how that was kind of his Achilles heel. And this is something that we actually discovered kind of inadvertently. So I've been doing the training business now for the last five years. And most recently we started a brokerage where a huge focus around training and we didn't realize that we can help almost anybody find leads, get the phone to ring, how to get a realtor to refer you. But then your next challenge is how do you get that client to work with you? And so one of the things that we had to do pretty quickly, we realized was the discovery call, which Graham alludes to in this call, and the strategy session were absolutely critical that you get figured out. And so the way that we've designed our training now, we teach you all the stuff plus what we taught Graham, and we teach you how to do the discovery call. We've actually got a discovery call coach, and we coach you on how to do the strategy call. We have a strategy call coach because those are key milestone moments that if you don't get dialed in, you're going to lose a lot of business and it works when you follow it properly. So if you're new and you want to be like, Hey Scott, I want to get that kind of support and coaching, go check out rookie to rockstar.ca. We will walk you through how we can help you get your business going. This next segment, I talked to Paul about gig work and how you can use it to qualify. Hey Paul, welcome to ask the experts. Hey Scott, how's it going, man? Fantastic. So, hey, let's talk about some of the interesting stuff that you can do in particular when it comes to like gig clients. You know, I think Gary Vaynerchuk recently wrote a book called The Gig Economy. And there's a lot more people that are working these side gigs. Income is very confusing or can be very, you know, mixed. So talk to me about that. What kind of stuff would you guys do for that type of client? Well, you know, Scott, I think for us, it was one of those things when COVID hit, you know, it was necessary for us to kind of move the needle on being able to come up with solutions for Canadians to get into homes. 
And what we found was that within the marketplace, a lot of people were just basically doing what they needed to do in order to get by. And hence, gig work was born, especially for us at Magenta, because now we were starting to see clients that were, you know, they were either doing like a skip the dishes, they were Uber drivers, they were waitressing, they were bartending, they were doing whatever they could, more or less to kind of, you know, get through the pandemic and just get through life in general. So yeah, with gig work, what we started to look at was, okay, if they can put together a story for us explaining, you know, what's reasonable, and when I say reasonable, you know, if they're a bartender, what does that look like for you based on the days that you work? So let's say they're working on the busy days, like a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and they're clearing about 200 bucks in tips per day, that's $600 that we would definitely look at in terms of income for them. Right. Okay. So I think this is great because more and more people are using these sort of side hustles. It's kind of a thing. And it wasn't Gary Vaynerchuk that wrote a book called The Gig Economy, but Gary Vaynerchuk does talk about it a lot. And so basically you have this solution for people who are able to go out and they have multiple streams of income. Can you think of a problem you solve for a client that had this type of situation? Yeah, definitely. We had a client not that long ago. He was a bartender and he was basically just coming out of pandemic and he was looking to more or less get that revenue stream going again. So in order to do so, he kind of had to take multiple side hustles to kind of create that revenue stream that he needed in order to qualify. And, you know, in his particular case, we were able to look at not only his bartending income, but we also looked at his skip the dishes income uh, mm-hmm. because he said just started driving. And I mean, we'll take three to six months in terms of bank statements, just verifying those deposits of that income going in. And I mean, obviously, we do put the onus a little bit on the brokers to kind of create that picture and that story for us so we understand it. But yeah, we have no issues in that regard. This one was a slam dunk for us only because both revenue streams, he was actually garnering a lot of income from it and he was able to substantiate that with the documentation he provided. And as I mentioned, it was really just, you know, three to six months bank statements showing consistent deposits of that cash business going through and it was easy. Right. That's awesome. Okay. So you've got gigs. What are the types of income will you guys look at that are not traditional, say through a prime lender that would not work? I'm curious. We take Airbnb. We look at Airbnb income. So, I mean, we did see again, that was an example. What do you mean by like, are you telling me people don't always claim Airbnb on their taxes? Are you (laughs) (laughs) really? I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? We actually have to get creative when finding solutions. And, you know, we found during the pandemic, We had situations where clients, you know, they had that property up in Muskoka that, you know, they weren't necessarily going up to and they had a friend or people that wanted to borrow it for, you know, 5,000 or 4,000 for the week. And, you know, they did that a few times uh, and they were sort of like, hey, I've got this extra income of, you know, 15 grand because I rented out my Airbnb or rented out my cottage, you know, will you guys look at this? And you know, it made sense. It wasn't seasonal, but it was still income. And, you know, we found a way to kind of facilitate that niche because, again, it's a solution to help people get into homes or help Canadians get into homes. I think it would be fun to work for you guys because it's like always trying to find a way to get to yes, as long as it makes sense, of course. But like, you know, compared to always trying to find a way to get to no, it's like, ah, yeah, no, 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 can't do that, can't do this. And then it's like, no, how can we come up with a solution? So you got gigs, you got Airbnb. Any other, like, how do you guys look at like foreign income, rental income, stuff like that? So rental income is one of our favorites. I mean, I've had the pleasure of working at several institutions, but this particular institution is, I'd have to say by far is my favorite, especially the way 
you mentioned finding solutions or finding the yes. In regards to rental income, we're looking at 100% offset or 100% add back. And so like when would you use one versus the other? It's basically dependent upon what makes the deal work. So the onus again is on the broker to kind of figure out, okay, well, which one works best for you when submitting that file to us. But it's hard to not have a deal work when you're using 100% offset or 100% add back. The offset is better though. Like, yeah, the offset's it, better. Yeah, offset is better. Like, yeah, that's good. Okay, so you got rental. How do you look at foreign income? So right now we're in the midst of actually putting that together. I don't want to say too much around the product because I know that we will go to market with it soon. But yeah, foreign income. Your secret safe with me. We won't tell anybody. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we will tell <laughs> you. Only thousand ready. people. Yeah, we won't tell anybody. You just, just shh. no. So I'm just kidding. We'll wait on that. Then okay. So how about like another area? Sometimes that comes up is business contracts. How would that work? So if you can provide the business contract, we'll take that as what it is when we receive it. Meaning, you know what, you've got a contract that's been, you know, signed from your employer saying that, hey, you're going to be with us for the next 12 months making 60000 or 70000 whatever that income is. We'll entertain that. I mean, we understand that a lot of the professions such as teachers, government employees, they're contract based. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is a yearly renewed contract, right? So we're seeing people who are, uh, you know, they've been at their job for maybe 10 or 12 years, but it's contract-based because of the nature of what they do. And yeah, we'll entertain that all day. If it's a contract income, we have no problem looking at that. What I didn't ask you about was, so what's the loan to value look like on this stuff? So the guy working the gigs or the contract person, what's your loan to value? 85. We'll go all the way up to 85 because we consider this verifiable income via bank statements. Right. So the rate on these things we're looking at is 364 if it's owner occupied, right? All the way up to 85, it becomes 374. But uh, outside of that, it's really just around the pricing. When I say pricing, I mean the fees. And the fees would range on the low end with the LTV at 65%, starting at around 2.25. Whereas on the higher side at 85% LTV, you're looking at a fee starting at around 3.75. But still, at the end of the day, to me, and that's all capped fees, right? They're baked into the mortgage. Our fees are always capped in. The clients never have to come out of pocket for any expenses. Again, another function of our mortgages that just makes it that much easier for our clients to kind of get cleaned up or get approved. Okay. And what do you guys pay brokers on that? We pay 80 basis points. That compensation is built into the fee that we charged. So, for example, on a 3.75 fee at 85% LTV, Within that 3.75, 80 beeps of that belongs to the broker. Okay. I have a question. Do you guys have like, if somebody puts a lot of volume through you guys, do you have a volume bonus program or is that always 80 basis points? It's always 80 basis points. We are actually in the midst of trying to create a broker appreciation model, if you can call it that. So we're working on that. Hopefully we'll have that for late 2022, early 2023. And we also give brokers the option to add compensation. So in the event that a broker says, Hey, you know what? I'd like to add 20 beeps to this. We just add the 20 beeps into the fee. Oh, I see. So it's all, you just tell you guys, okay. So usually it's around hundred basis points for most files, you know, depending on how you run your business. But so then that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay. So let's do a quick recap on this. So basically you're saying that somebody who works gigs, multiple gigs, like skip the dishes, DoorDash, Uber, bartending, mm-hmm. Airbnb income, you can use right? Correct. Because we know everybody claims it on their taxes. They don't. Rental income and <laughs> offset, 100%, either or. And in the markets that you guys service, you can go up to 85% if you guys can 
verify income through one of those sources. Now, what if they can't verify income? What does that look like? Well, at 85, there's not a lot of options. They can do the stated program. What's the max in the loan to value on that? 85. So they can go 85% stated, and that starting fee is at 4%. Now, if it's at 80% LTV, they have more options because we take out the verifiable, we take out the stated, then they have the option of the low doc. And the low doc starts at around 3.25 at 80% LTV. That's really just an NOA confirming that there's no taxes owing. And of course, my personal favorite, the no doc, which is exactly as it sounds. They just, <laughs> they show no documentation, but they pay a little slightly higher fee at 3.75 to start. Right. Okay. So you basically have a solution for everybody. Almost. We do. Not everybody, but we do. Yeah. Just yeah. about like, just about, you know what, if we don't have a solution for you, we have a plan to get you there so that we can get you approved. Right. That's fantastic. So I got to talk about skip the dishes for a second. So this is something that when you were a kid, they didn't have skip the dishes, but my kid's school has a table for skip the dish orders. So like the kids now order skip the dishes so much that they literally have a table. So the drivers will come drop off the coffees, drop off the McDonald's, and then the kids come pick it up. Isn't that great? Wow. I'm like, and I'm like, how much are you guys ordering skip the dishes at the school put a table <laughs> out front for these people to put stuff on? This is the world we're living in though, right? Like, so I guess the whole point of that is that we have to start getting more creative about how we solve these financing problems because more and more people are using this as a way to make money and this income. But I couldn't even imagine that, you know, my kids on their phone sitting in class, you know, ordering lattes for them and their friends. And then <laughs> yeah. they like, what kind of, what is this? It's crazy. I know. That anyway. Okay. So crazy. where can people get a hold of you if they have one of these kind of files they want to run past you guys? Oh yeah. They can definitely reach out to us at brokers at magenta investment.ca. That's investment with no S. No S because S's are ooh. Have you, ever, yes. have you ever seen Sarah H with Jimmy Fallon? He does this thing where yes. he dresses up. It's some Sarah with no H because H's are ill. So we'd just be like, we're a magenta investment because the second S is here. All right, man, this is awesome chatting with you, Paul. And you guys listen to this. I'm telling you, there's some really creative stuff that you can do and really help your clients out and solve them and stop your kids from ordering skip the dishes at school. I'm telling you, they don't need to do it. Thanks, bud. All right, take care, Scott. Hey, thanks again for listening to the conversation today with myself and Graham and Paul. Hopefully you picked up a couple nuggets that you can use for your mortgage business. And again, if you're new, go check out rookie2rockstar.ca. We'd love to chat with you about how we can help you, you know, turn you into the next Graham Campbell, funding 28 or even 50 million three years later. If you're coachable, of course, and you are motivated and driven, we'd love to chat. And if you want some other tips for helping your mortgage business, go check out islandmortgagebrokering.com. Set up a free power search account where you can search all the past episodes. It's totally free. Check that out. And thanks again for listening to this episode. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.